and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Right in the intersection of all of that are physics experiments, especially theoretical physics experiments, where the application of those massive projects is not immediately clear when the scientists themselves go out to begin finding those solutions. So this week, we're talking to Susie Sheehy. She's a physicist, an academic, and a science communicator who divides her time between the University of Oxford and the University of Melbourne. And she's currently focused in her research work on the development of new particle accelerators for applications in medicine. But she's also written a really fabulous book called The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Changed the World. Susie Sheehy, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. So one of the things I really like about your approach to understanding physics is that it is grounded in how these discoveries were made. And that to me is always fascinating, especially when you have a serendipitous discovery. You know, often it's so hard to get funding for basic science and theoretical physics, I think is particularly esoteric for a lot of people. They don't understand, like, why should we be spending so much money building a particle accelerator <laughs> when, you know, and, and then there are, of course, people who understand and who realize that a lot of the answers about the universe are going to be, you know, within this kind of sphere. But for those that are still skeptical, I wondered if we could start with the story of the first particle accelerators. And you, you know, you do such a great job of going back to the place where even the people who were building these things did not know what they were building. And that's really appealing to me. So Let's start there. I don't know if you want to start with Charles Bennett and his violin, um, or you know, there's another if there's another way into the story. But I, I'd love to go deep into that story. Sure. I mean, in so in um in the book, I tell this story uh, of this guy in the 1970s who went to a flea market, um, and he's a he's a student in physics, and he goes to a flea market and finds this violin, and he looks inside the sort of S shape on the front of the violin, and he sees this little yellow sticker, which uh, says Stradivarius. And he's like, okay, this could be a complete fake, uh, but it could be real. You never know. So it's $80. So he buys it at the flea market. And this sets him off on this journey of trying to figure out if it's authentic or not. Um, and he tells his PhD advisor, and they work in nuclear physics at Rochester. And together, they're trying to figure out how on earth they could measure this. And they're like, okay, well, we could use carbon dating, but Carbon dating means you have to take a sample of the wood and it has to sort of decay away and you have to count how many radioactive decays there are to figure out how much carbon there is and therefore when the tree was cut down to make it. But they realise that to do that, they're going to have to destroy the violin and then it's going to be worthless. So if it is like a priceless antique, they're kind of stuck. And almost serendipitously, these collaborators come in to the lab and ask whether they can use the particle accelerator, which existed at that time in the 70s, to put very small samples in 
and use it to do a more precise form of carbon dating. And that experiment was kind of the start of what we now call accelerated mass spectrometry <laughs> um, or accelerated mass spectroscopy, uh, subtly different. But they, uh, they're both used as like precise forms of, of carbon dating. And, and so that started in the 70s. But then in the book, I'm like, okay, so what is this behemoth in the lab and why, why do they have it and what's it actually used for? And that takes us all the way back to about 1927. Um, so like 50 years earlier. And this race to understand what's inside the nucleus and the structure of the nucleus of the atom. So at that point, uh, by 1927, we sort of knew about the rough structure of atoms and that we knew that there was a, a dense nucleus at the center, electrons around the outside. The proton had been discovered, the neutron had been discovered in 1932. Uh, but really understanding how the nucleus itself was put together seemed to be the next sort of big port of call of like what, um, of understanding in physics. And so there were numerous labs around the world who were trying to create beams of particles that they could use to do these investigations and get deeper into the nucleus. And what they realized they needed was a, a reliable source of particles and not just, they were considering not just electrons, but also say protons, um, you know, the nuclei of, of hydrogen. And they were like, okay, so how are we going to create these particles, give them energy and control them so that we can sort of bombard them onto a target of a metal and using that sort of bombarding technique, figure out what's going on deep inside the nucleus of those materials. And so there were competing technologies. And um, you'll remember from the book that some of them are what you'd expect. So uh, transformers, uh, so to get up to high voltages. So that was the key thing. They needed high voltages. And when you put a charged particle through um, a high voltage or through a potential, it gains energy. So that was like the key trick, right? So transformers, um, they were using things like Tesla coils, which were pretty unreliable and ne were never really successful as a power source. Um, Robert Van de Graaff invented his technique in 1927 as well. 27 was a big year. And then there were some researchers also in Germany who were even trying to harness lightning to get that very high voltage. Um, and sadly, their experiments came to an end when one of the researchers actually fell down the ravine and, and died. He wasn't struck by lightning, but he there was a bad accident. And, um, and so that, yeah, the harnessing of lightning, we may never know whether that could have worked as a particle accelerator. Um, they did have some success in harnessing the, the voltage. Um, but the big I think the biggest breakthrough really came in Cambridge in England in 1932 when two researchers, Cockcroft and Walton, John Cockcroft and Ernest Walton, um, working under Ernest Rutherford, who's this sort of eponymous New Zealand character who ends up working mostly in the UK, big, loud personality, and he has all these researchers working out under him and Cockcroft and Walton ended up building the first particle accelerator which was really used um, to split the atom for the first time in April 1932. And it's a really lovely adventure that they go on because none of the technology exists, as you just said before. It feels like they don't really know what they're building when they start building it, which is true. And they have to figure out as they go along, okay, well, if there's this nucleus and there's also, you know, there's charges going on, what's the force between those? And therefore, how much energy are we going to need to overcome those forces? 
and that you know when they first calculated they're they like oh my goodness we're gonna need like 10 million volts to overcome the coulomb repulsion the electrical repulsion from the nucleus and that scared them witless right because like in in the late 1920s most homes didn't even have electricity so the fact they're trying to think even think about hundreds of thousands let alone millions of volts in the lab um you know their management of those high voltages was not established so they had to they sort of had to figure out how to work with high voltages safely through the same period so that included things like putting glass shields around things karuna shields to stop sparking and breaking down um how to seal different components together and they even used um they started out using Bank of England sealing wax and eventually they used what we would now call plasticine to actually um, connect the joints together. And they had to have brand new things manufactured. So they had to go to suppliers of transformers and say, hey, we need one that's more powerful, but actually like way smaller because it can't fit through the door of our lab. <laughs> um, so some real practical challenges there. And then just lots and lots of problem solving to try and create these beams of particles. And they had many false starts, uh, which I won't go through all the details, but it's, it's there in the story. Um, and eventually, yeah, in 1932, they sort of had this beam, they warmed up the machine and um, realised almost immediately that what they were seeing on this screen in front of them, and, and here I'm, you know, to get a visual, imagine there's a big tube above your head in this sort of industrial space surrounded by wires and electrical apparatus and big um if you've ever seen uh, a Crawford machine it's often these big copper zigzaggy tubes things like that so you're surrounded by all this apparatus and to do the experiment you the researcher in Ernest Walton in this case has to crawl across the lab and into a wooden box that's underneath all of this where the beam is coming down above his head and he sits in this box and pulls a little curtain across and he's looking in the dark at a zinc sulfide screen and those screens light up with flashes when they're hit by alpha particles so helium nuclei now there were no alpha particles going into the experiment there was uh, particles coming down from the accelerator and there was a lithium target. And as soon as he ramped it up and switched it on and made this reaction happen, he was seeing these alpha particles you know, lighting up the screen in front of him. And even as a young student, he knew that this was an incredible moment because to create those alpha particles meant that the, the nucleus of the lithium nucleus itself had been split and the, the nucleus of the atom had been split for the first time. Um, and it just it just gives me shivers every time I think about a student sitting underneath a particle accelerator watching a screen, watching such a momentous thing that we now sort of look back at as, as this big event in the history of physics. But to him, it was almost just another workday where this weird thing happened and then he had to figure out what it meant. Yeah, I mean, especially like, you know, picturing the cardboard box with a little curtain. I mean, it almost sounds like a puppet theater that a child has made in order to, you Doesn't know, play, it? right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I, loved, I love those details. Yeah. And that, you know, it was like the first time that, you know, I, th this kind of scene building in your book, I think is really powerful to give us this visual sense of being there and the kind of just the scrappiness of the way these things got put together, you know, trying different solutions. Yes, and I also, love that. I love that word scrappiness. It is. That's <laughs> like, that feels like real science to me when it's scrappy. Right. 
Exactly. Like who's got some duct tape, you know, who's got like some, you know, there's all these like little tools around the lab that you can just pick up and, and use as you need. But also the fact that so often these kinds of discoveries or, you know, a lot of this work happens uh, for purposes that that are not even necessarily to do science. So this idea that like maybe there's this stratovirus sort of various violin and we need to test how it is. And I've got some tools in the lab. It reminds me of, um, you know, some of the work of my of my friend who's a, a ear surgeon and who studies the neuroscience of jazz improvisation and who's just an aficionado of of, of jazz and instruments. And, That's amazing. Um, I want to read all about that. <laughs> yeah, well, he, his, yeah, his name is Charles Lim. Uh, he's really interesting. It's a great TED Talk. And he, uh, so, you know, he was just curious to see what was happening in the brains of some of these jazz greats. And so he was like, well, you know, how do I look inside their brains? I got to put them in a brain scanner, but there's no, you know, how do you play, how do you improvise music in a MRI machine where there's this big magnet and you need to like reduce all kinds of electrical noise? Like this is a real problem. So, you know, he had this, this piano built for the, you know, you know, to solve this, this particular problem. And it just seems like, you know, and, and now that particular that particular piano is lost, and so to rebuild it is like you need a you need a special engineer, and this is like just all these kind of weird practical both problems and solutions that happen in just like the nitty gritty work of science, and it comes from hey, I, I wonder what my friend's brain looks like when they're you know improvising a jazz riff, or I wonder if this violin really is worth a million dollars. Yeah, I think you've nailed it there in terms of someone following their curiosity and that like jazz jazz improv in an MRI is like such a great example of that um and then it's like okay well I'm curious about this thing I feel like there could be something really interesting if I can get answers to my questions but nothing exists for me to be able to measure that or you know this thing doesn't exist and it's really that whole you know necessity is the mother of invention and in you know my area of physics and and sort of particle physics it really has been over the last hundred years, this journey of like, well, you know, a device doesn't exist that can generate particles at those energies. So we're going to have to figure out how to invent it. And then, oh, then it's a deep dive into engineering and into craftsmanship and into, you know, all these technical areas that you'd almost never expect. I mean, I've had so many people comment on how they didn't realize that, you know, in the 1910, 1920s, as a research scientist, and this persisted through to like the 1940s and 50s, you had to learn how to blow glass as a science research student because you had to build your own apparatus. And, you know, there were no CNC milling machines back then. <laughs> so um, so you had, to, you had to make it out of glass with your own hands. Or if you were really lucky and had good support, maybe the, the lab glass blower would do it for you. But that, that that blew my mind. I even even in writing the book, I went to visit a scientific glass blower who worked in my university because I was so intrigued by what that process looked like. And I was like, surely this is like a really specialized skill. And the only thing it convinced me by watching him blow glass that yes, it absolutely is a specialized skill. <laughs> and just like we have to learn how to how to code, how to, you know, do CAD drawings and understand electronics. Back then, there was just a whole different set of skills that you needed to build an experiment. And I really think for a lot of people, that's where, yeah, that curiosity combined with those practical hands-on skills, there's just, to me, there's so much joy in that in being able to build something with your own hands, which can answer big scientific questions. 
Yeah, and I remember, you know, when uh, when I was a graduate student, I was dating a postdoc at Stanford who had to make these like little um, electrical coils that he was using in an experiment. And he would go down to the machinist's office in the basement and there'd be a machinist and you'd say, I need, you know, I'm doing this electrophysiological experiment. I need like this, that and that tool. And, you know, I need, need to put it together. It, 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 it certainly was very hand on. I'm sure that's still the case uh, in a lot of labs where, you know, you go down and, and into the basement and, and you have some help from an engineer. That particular machinist, his name was Bob, and he was uh, a really he was really into Burning Man, which is this, uh, you know, this this festival yeah, yeah. in the desert. Right. <laughs> where you and it was like early Burning Man when like nobody knew about it. Um, He'd be a and, great Burning Man attendee as well because he could just make anything. Exactly. He would. <laughs> yeah. And so like when he wasn't making things for the lab, he'd be working on his Burning Man, you know, constructions. Awesome. And it, it was just like this, this real combination of art and geeky, you know, science um, with just this passion for, for life and curiosity. And, and a lot of the stories in your book really get back to that. But now, of course, we have these massive teams, you know, at CERN, et cetera, and like, and, you know, Slack, uh, and, and you've got like these just you know, a thousand people that are required to like, you know, get an experiment going. And I wonder if you could comment on that big change. Like in a hundred years, we've gone from somebody in a cardboard box with a little curtain <laughs> to like, you know, a multi-billion dollar project that crosses borders in, you know, underneath the mountains of Switzerland. Like, Yeah, it it has been such an enormous shift. And I think Partly out of necessity. So at least in my field um, with particle accelerators, as we started to understand more and more particles in nature and, um, you know, at first that was going sort of deeper and deeper inside the atom, but then over time, all these other particles started cropping up in experiments that didn't exist in our everyday matter. And then to find those because they were rare and required energy to produce them in sort of collision processes, then we had to build these machines with sufficient energy to be able to do that and sufficient intensity of the beam, I'll say as well. And so to a certain extent, sort of the the progression of these machines getting physically larger and larger was just down to this push to higher and higher energy. And that persists all the way, all the way through up till today. You see this, you know, this progression larger and larger and larger. And that's not to say it's taking the same technology and making it bigger and bigger. They would be, you know, at least 10 times larger if we hadn't also improved the engineering and using things like superconducting magnets along the way. So there's this huge push toward these large laboratories because the experiments themselves, the technology to produce the beams to get the data becomes necessarily so large that one individual group and eventually one individual country can't afford to build them and maintain them, et cetera, et cetera. And this really sort of boomed after World War II when there was, at least in the US, a proliferation of sort of big labs and big accelerators somewhat because of the success of success, so I say that with hesitation, um, of, of the Manhattan Project and Los Alamos and bringing together many, many physicists and engineers and, and people and setting them a really difficult, potentially intractable problem and having them succeed. Now, of course, the sentiment towards what people wanted to put that energy toward was toward very different questions post World War II, um, and you know we can have a, a whole other conversation about that. But in general, there was a shifting in the sort of moral position of a lot of the scientists post World War II toward either trying to use 
their knowledge to the benefit of humanity. So we get medical technologies, we get energy technologies, things like that, or just to the benefit of humanity through seeking fundamental knowledge. And that desire to work together toward something greater than themselves individually, but with the idea that it's a positive contribution to humanity, has pretty much pervaded the field ever since. I know a lot of people in the field who are very pacifistic, I think would be the right word for it. Um, And when CERN was created post-World War II in 1954, it was ratified with 12 member states, some of whom had been at war just a few years earlier. And it was actually written into the statutes of CERN that CERN is for science for peace. So they're not allowed to accept money from countries for defense funding. Um, They're not allowed to produce research that's relevant to you know, sort of defense and things like that. It it actually has a very specific role to play. And personally, I think that's one of the reasons that CERN has been so successful because it's allowed these thousands of people, as you say, to contribute to something without fear that one of the parties is going to use that knowledge for a purpose that was not what they signed up for. I had no idea that there was this kind of, you know, four piece clause uh, in the yeah. agreement. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it is. And um, to me, I think that's a model that a lot of different international uh, sort of organizations and collaborations could learn from. I know that, for example, the UN have worked with CERN in understanding the impacts of thing- just things like that on on how they collaborate worldwide. So, yeah, so today, you know, scientists in particle physics especially might be working, uh, you know, there are Russian and Ukraine scientists both working at CERN, for example. Right, Um, right, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) there's something to that spirit of collaboration which can overcome the political divides, uh, to an extent anyway, to the extent that it's allowed. But with that many people working and and that much money involved, and you know, I know you have to you have to be very, you know, clear about reserving time uh, on the accelerator. You have to, you know, you get this little tiny sliver of time. It costs a lot of money, so you know, you have to you just have to use that very wisely. It made me wonder about the, you know, the kind of experimentation, the kind of serendipitous findings that that come out of when you just have access to the lab 24/7 and you can pop in there and and you know carbon date your violin. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you what do you think about like so you know yeah I I've I've been asked this quite a bit like you know it does the way we do science now in these big science experiments does that hamper that kind of more serendipitous discovery. Um and so I've had some time to kind of think about that and I think oh I know where that feeling is coming from because from the outside all you see for example at CERN is there's this big 27 kilometer collider. And I will say on at CERN anyway, like all the machine is run, you know, almost 24 seven when it's actually running. And then all that data is collected and then it's accessible to everybody. So it's, it's not even, I mean, you'll be a member of one of the main collaborations usually, which have a few thousand people in them, but all the data from that collaboration is available to everyone in that collaboration. So, so we have shifted even beyond that, go in and use a small bit of, bit of bean time and, and gather your data. So now it's like, all the data for everybody all the time. <laughs> um, I think there is still space, even within those large collaborations, if you have a good idea uh, of something to look at, there is a f- sort of fair and transparent 
process of, you know, if you want to propose, actually, we should run at this specific energy for some time, because there's this really compelling reason why I think I'm going to find something if we run in that specific way, that may make a successful campaign if others come on board and be like, yes, actually, let's do this. So there's, it's not, it is a, it is a behemoth (laughs) of the collaboration, but there are structures to try and stay a bit nimble. The other thing that's really relevant to this is the Large Hadron Collider is just one of the accelerators at CERN. There is a whole chain of injection accelerators that used to be the largest accelerator in the world, in, often in their time. Um, and then there's test facilities all around the site. So building toward the next generation of colliders, there's test machines. So there's lots of other beams available. And it's on those other accelerators and beams in lots of different labs around the world that typically those more high-risk experiments can can take place. Um, so I, I still think that within, and, and actually that's probably a key point, which is that without that amazing wealth of expertise and all of those collaborators and everyone working together on that and just having all these facilities and all these different minds in one place, I think that makes it more likely that you're going to end up having a serendipitous sort of discovery or, or as you say, you know, someone thinks, what if I did this with this thing? Well, it's available to me, so I'll go and test that. Having the facilities makes those kind of serendipitous ideas possible. But if we yeah, if we sort of didn't have the facilities, then, you know, definitely not. There's a lot of evidence, too, that diversity of a team is a big driver of creativity and of, of you know, of actually really good science, that the more diverse the team is, you know, the more those papers get cited, which I think is really interesting. Yes, 100%. Um, this is something now, now, yeah, now you're talking straight to my heart here. Like, this is something I, I include in a lot of my presentations is this idea that that more diverse teams are either more creative or more productive. And there's there's one particular study, if, if people haven't heard about it, um, there's, there was a study done by MIT on problem solving, difficult problem solving by teens. And they uh, set these groups of, of people, they were students, so it's like a s- particular demographic, but they set them some difficult problems to solve as a team, including mathematical problems. So it wasn't like, you know, fake, fake problems. And then they, they, left them to, to solve the problem and then they sort of analyze what the social components and the um, aspects of the group were that made them more successful at problem solving. Now, I can feel it coming up even in me, this idea that, oh, well, the smart teams will have performed better, right? So there's, there's this preconception that we have that, okay, if you just take the IQs of the people in the group for these sort of difficult mathematical type problems, Either it will be the average IQ or the peak IQ in the group, right? Either the one really smart person will have helped everyone along, we've all been in groups like that, or um, you know, or maybe if everyone on average is smarter, then they'll have been better at solving the problems. That is not what they found at all. What they found was that the groups that had a, a higher factor of sort of social intelligence, and there's they have ways of measuring that that the groups with higher social intelligence performed better, the groups that gave equal time to everyone in the group performed better, and the groups with more women performed better. And I don't mean up to 50%. I mean across the board. (laughs) And of course, that third factor in our society at the moment is correlated with the first factor um, and possibly with the second. So you can't quite tease those apart as completely independent variables. But I find that a really interesting study that it's not IQ on average or peak IQ that led to that top performing 
team performance. It's it is much more about diversity and social values of the team. And learning about that study changed the way that I run my research group. And yet, you know, you've written this book that has all of these historical discoveries, and it's very uh, heavily skewed towards stories of white men. Uh, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> that's our history. I mean, we you know we can't get away from it. You know, I, I you know, so I, I, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the discoveries that you made. Was it that just women weren't involved because they weren't allowed to be, or they weren't encouraged to be, or, you know, what we can speculate, you know, or is it just that they weren't acknowledged? And did you find stories in which, you know, we've all heard now of these kinds of stories, like, you know, the discovery of the shape of DNA, et cetera, where there were, there were female scientists who were given the short end of the stick when it came to, um, you know, acknowledging their work. So there were fewer women, like I will, I will admit that. I mean, our society uh, through that period made it very, very difficult for women to do science, but they weren't non-existent. And that came as a surprise in some places, even to me, even as a, a woman working in physics, I thought I knew these stories and I thought I knew who was there in the room and who contributed. And it turned out in a number of instances that I that I didn't know that and that there were um, women who'd made incredible contributions who had gone more or less ignored or unacknowledged or or at least under-acknowledged for their contributions. So just a couple of examples. Um, I discovered uh, Harriet Brooks, who is well known to Canadians, but not so much outside of outside of uh, Canada. Uh, she was Ernest Rutherford's first research student in Montreal. She made some really important contributions to our understanding of radioactivity and radioactive decay that led eventually between Rutherford and, and Frederick Soddy to our understanding of half-life. She made some awesome contributions. Rutherford later would describe her as the most prominent woman in radioactivity uh, sort of outside of Marie Curie. You know, she was clearly really, really bright and she was so someone proposed to marry her and she found out she'd have to quit her job in physics if she got married so she broke off the engagement i mean can you imagine in like the early 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 1900s this is like 1905 the guts of a woman to break off an engagement to pursue physics i'm just like i want to know i want to meet this woman <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and she, so she went on with physics and, and later on in her, her career, she gets to about the age of 30 and the same thing happens again. Someone courts her and um, Rutherford at that point is, is offering her a position in Manchester. So she really has that career versus family um, decision to make. And at that point, she chooses to get married because she I think she realizes that you know she's having to support herself throughout all of this with scholarships. And I think she realizes that she's going to have a very insecure future if she stays in physics. Of course, that's my supposition because it's not really written down. There's no, none of her letters or, or, you know, there's no memoir. There's no, um, there's no interview with her that I could find. So if anyone's listening that knows more about her, um, do send it my way. So we miss out on her contributions because she leaves physics and, and raises a family and it was not possible to combine those things at that point in time. Um, so she was a, she was such a great example because I, I started in a lot of places just looking at the photographs, you know, getting a feel for the places people worked, the the teams they worked with. And I remember seeing Rutherford's research group photograph in Montreal and I'd never heard of Harriet Brooks. And in the middle of the photograph, 
there's this woman in you know winter all this winter gear with her fur hat on and she's staring like straight out at the camera you can't miss her she's enigmatic in the center of the photograph and I sort of thought there she is just staring at us and yet nobody ever acknowledges her existence like this is clearly a bias how can we how can we ignore this woman or these women and um, so there are a number of other examples. Marietta Blau invented a photographic technique as a particle detector, was nominated uh, for the Nobel but never won it. Um, and Biba Chowdhury was an Indian physicist who used that same technique uh, to discover not one but two new particles. But because the quality of her nuclear emulsions wasn't uh, the highest available quality, it wasn't quite the clinching measurement. And so Cecil Powell in Bristol in 1950 was awarded the Nobel Prize for basically the same thing with better equipment, with no acknowledgement of either Marietta Blau or Eva Chowdhury from the Nobel Committee. He was awarded it solo. There was plenty of space in the in the three people limit, you know. <laughs> not that I'm arguing that they should have been, it should have been him and the two women, but, you know, that's not my argument, but um, just that they were overlooked. And and this, there were many stories of that, uh, and I included probably five or six uh, of those stories in the book. And eventually I decided I had to include a little bit that gave this effect a name because it's not just, it's not just a few unfortunate stories. It is a sort of systematic under-acknowledgement and under-representation of women's contributions, which happens not just in science, but also in other fields. Um, and the name the name that's been given by a historian named Margaret Rossiter, she named it the Matilda Effect after Matilda Gage, who was a, a suffragist who first noted this sort of systematic effect of the under-acknowledgement of women's contributions. And I think it's really important that we have a word to describe it. I was very happy when I was like, oh, now I can refer to it as a, the Matilda effect, you know, where women's contributions in particular get get overlooked. And she really encouraged people to do that work to find those stories of the, the women's contributions in particular, because they are going to be harder to find. That's the thing. Like when something is so systematic, you realize you haven't heard about them because you go into the the history of science book section in in the library and there's 10 books on Ernest Rutherford but zero books on Harriet Brooks and you realize that this recording of history and who we deem to be important is a compounding effect you know if if they're deemed less important in their own time so their stories aren't written down their letters aren't kept they're never interviewed nobody ever writes a book about them they're never awarded the prizes their names might even be left off the research papers although in the case of the women that i'm quoting they were like first author nature papers they're not even obscure <laughs> and so now you know it gets to today it gets to 100 years later and of course i haven't heard of them because all of those effects compounded over time and and we just simplify and retell the story with the main characters because and I mean, even I found this in writing the book, it's hard to have so many characters all at once. Our brains don't manage well in a story with too many characters. So you'll leave out the ones that seem less important, which is the women. I mean, you know, it's and there's there's a kind of there's a, a subtle but profound effect of that this acknowledgement can have, um, uh, you know, even on current students. So I, I work at the University of San Francisco and in the psychology department, we have recently created a psycholo psychology students association. And they've been really proactive this past year to highlight the work of BIPOC psychologists. And one of their efforts recently has been to essentially find pictures uh, of, of black uh 
former, you know, uh, psychologists or current psychologists, and just like create two little sentence descriptions of their work and paste them around the department. And so every day now, as we walk, um, you know, along our offices, we see these pictures and we see these images and you think, well, that might be kind of odd, but it's not odd because before that there were pictures of lots of white people (laughs) on those walls. Right. And just like the difference of this, like, daily reminder of these individuals who have been under acknowledged but who exist I have to say is has a profound effect it's like yeah we really actually have to retrain our brains because we've spent so many years assuming that these contributions didn't exist and so when we're presented with evidence to the contrary we try and ignore it at first because we you know our brains just want to keep the status quo So I love that intervention of just like, you know, almost like bombing the department with all this information, you know, like with just like, you know, so you can't, you can't miss it. And eventually, you know, you'll have that connection in your brain. Oh, who made this, you know, discovery or contribution to psychology? Oh, it was this person. Yeah, exactly. Um, And you'll overcome it that way. But it's, it's, it's the work that we, especially as white people need to do. Exactly right. So I want to remind our listeners that Susie Sheehy's book, The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Changed the World is available at booksellers everywhere. This is a great sort of documentation of several really important experiments and the, you know, nitty gritty, not dirty, but almost haphazard science uh, that, that underscores or underlies some of these really major discoveries. I'd like to end with having you describe uh, one of the other, one of your sort of favorite serendipitous discovery stories. I mean, I personally like the x-ray story, but, you know, is there another one or is 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 that the one that you feel is, you know, just great storytelling? I think the the x-ray one is fairly well known. So I'm going to I'm going to leave that um, because I think the one that one of the ones that jumps out to me a lot is the cloud chamber story. So um, this is this happens again in like the very early 1900s through to about 1912 and in again in Cambridge actually I've really highlighted Cambridge here haven't I UK Cambridge um there's uh this physicist named CTL or Charles Wilson um and he actually is really interested in meteorology so he's not right into the nuclear physics and radioactivity that the other members of his department were were keen on and so he spends some time up the top of Ben Nevis in Scotland where his um where he grew up in in Scotland. And if anyone's ever climbed that mountain or attempted to climb that mountain, you know that it's it's a really cloudy part of the world. Um, I've never managed to climb Ben Nevis because despite being up there a few times, it's always been such horrible weather that I've never been able to climb the mountain. But he managed to get up there in like beautiful blue sky weather um, where the clouds were sort of either below him or floating around. And he observed some of these really interesting meteorological phenomena like uh, the broken spectre is one and glories are others where there's really interesting sort of refractive effects of light that produce um, either sort of a shadow person or weird colours and shapes. And so he decided to go to back to his lab and he was a good glass blower. And he decided to develop an apparatus to make clouds in the lab. Um, And he was interested in how clouds form and he thought that it might be to do with the electrical charges in the air. Uh, So that was one thing that he was trying to investigate. Uh, But he was also interested in the interaction of light with the clouds and all these visual effects that he'd seen. Um, So he builds this device uh, called a cloud chamber 
and he notices that even when the air is really, really clean inside there, so he doesn't expect any clouds to be forming, there's still little, there's still clouds forming in it. Like there's still little bits of cloud that that form, and so this you know confuses him a bit. But eventually, someone, whether it was him or someone else, I'm not entirely sure. But someone sort of came up with the idea that well, if it is the electrical charges inside the chamber, why don't you? fire a, a, an x-ray device at the chamber and see if you can see the effect of the um, ionization of the x-rays because x-rays interact with uh, with the air or with things around them and um, ionize, so, you know, throw off electrons um, from the gases around them. And so if it was to do with that electrical effect, then he should be able to see something. And they hold up a x-ray um device next to his cloud chamber when it was working and it would sort of pump and expand and there'd only be a certain time point when it was uh you know in a cloud producing mode and it produces these like showers of visualization of the x-rays of the ionization and that must have just been such a beautiful moment to realize that he'd sort of accidentally built an apparatus which could visualize the effects of radiation and so he goes back and he perfects it until um, it becomes this device where people can uh, leave the cloud chamber sort of expanding, photograph it at a particular point in its cycle and see the interactions of charged particles in nature coming through it. And this was how they made a whole lot of the early discoveries of particles like the muon. So that was one of the first ones that was uh, discovered that's beyond the atom that's just existing in nature and even the positron so the first uh evidence of antimatter which and the experimenter who found antimatter didn't even know it had been predicted three years earlier he just sort of saw this weird trail in his cloud chamber photographs and managed to figure out from the curvature of the track and so on um that it must be the same as an electron but the opposite charge and that was uh you know a pretty mind-blowing thing so i i love that story it's sort of a longer story of serendipity because it's it's again it's that having the right skills and the right people and applying something to a new question just because you're in the right almost the right place at the right time with the right equipment yeah and it also underscores how someone from outside the field can be instrumental in like making this kind of a serendipitous discovery um, yeah, so, yeah, if not more so than the people in the field, because exactly. they, they have different ways of thinking and different techniques. Yeah. And different questions, too, ultimately, about what they think might be interesting. Well, Susie Shi, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. We'd like to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale Master, and Charles Bile. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling 
pine-swaying and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.